You're listening to Episode 4 of Songwriter Stories. I'm Dave Caruso. There's a reason why songwriting trios like the Hangabouts are more scarce than songwriting duos. The roles of John Lowry, Gregory Addington, and Chip Sam are fluid and dynamic, which means anyone in the band is free to contribute any idea at any time during the writing or recording process. That kind of collaboration requires a fearless trust and immense patience with two other partners, especially if their suggestions seem at odds with your original vision. Qualities like those don't come naturally to most creative people, but the Hangabouts have those qualities in spades. Want to know what else they have in spades? Great songs. In this episode, you'll learn about the Hangabout synergy as collaborative music producers. From birth of an idea, through multiple recorded iterations, to their final master, all three band members compose, edit, play, shape, record, produce, polish, and mix their songs, adapting them to an evolving team vision as they go. Let's listen, and then we'll jump right to the interview. She's as bright as a star Shoot an arrow See how far she'll go She'll call shotgun When you're riding to the sun She won't make it too easy And she won't make it too hard All day, all night she is All right, the Hangabouts, John, Greg, Chip, welcome to Songwriter Stories. Hey, hey, thanks for having us. Good to be here. Let's talk about songwriting. Before we dig into your history, there's a little bit of history there. Oh, there's history. I want to talk about your musical backgrounds. How did the training that you had as musicians feed into your songwriting? So this is John, Hangabout John. Hi, John. Um, I, I didn't really have any... Uh, are too much formal uh, training. In fact, the only real lessons that I ever had were I, a kid on the in the the town I lived in, Livonia, Michigan, who lived a block over, showed me some chords on guitar, and he was a guitar teacher for me for a a couple of weeks, and uh, and then that long, yeah, exactly, it shows. <laughs> and then in uh, and when I was in college, I didn't study music, but I did take a piano performance class Hmm. and uh just to kind of understand the piano a little bit or at least learn how to play scales and where the notes were but that's that's about it aside from i took clarinet i guess in elementary school you know how you had the the band class and you selected an instrument um beyond that it's mostly uh jam sessions with friends and picking up little stuff from guys like you and and other great musicians in the detroit area you and Greg both worked at the same music store. Michigan uh, musicians will be nostalgic to hear about it. So talk a little bit about that as you go. I'll let Greg start on this. Yeah, hey, this is Greg. Yeah, John and I met at a place called Arnold Williams Music in Canton, Michigan. Yeah, the crowd goes wild. Um, it was, a, you know, it's basically a band, and, you know, it's a band instrument, uh, MI, piano store that, you know, catered to, uh, you know, really all markets, home markets, pro market. 
And um, John, I worked in the, you know, in the combo department or MI department or whatever you like to call it, wherever you come from. There was an actual Arnold Williams, right? A person. He was, yeah. Oh, yeah. We, neither one of us got to meet him. His son, John Williams, in the family ran the business when we worked there. Okay, so on to our third hangabout, our latest joiner hangabout, Chip. Hey, Dave. Hey. Good to be here. In terms of training, I remember riding my bike up to Westland Music. I knew there's going to be exercise Road. involved. Exactly. Um, and, and just falling in love with uh, a bass guitar. And uh, is that the RD artist? Chip? It was the RD artist, man. The Gibson, the oak nice. tree, we called it. We used to call it. Uh, but yeah, saved up my money, bought this RD artist, signed up for lessons, took lessons at Westland Music once a week for oh. probably six months with a guy named Roger. Roger. And beyond that, it was really uh, just playing live. You know, Greg and I joined forces. Uh, early on in a, in a, in a group called speaker's corner. And it was just, uh, my musical training was through, through playing live. Your lack of formal training is completely, we can't hear that on the record. Hmm. Beginners or people who don't get formal training tend to do just a lot of strumming and you don't strum all the time. You write parts. And I'm really impressed with that. You know, Dave, I think I, I know that about your, records as well and I, and I think it's a great point and it's something that it took me at least this is John again talking Hi, John. It, it took me a lot of prodding from from Greg uh, you know early takes especially early songwriting demos of a lot of these songs were exactly what you just described which is a lot of strumming and you know your ear gets tired of that after a while and if you listen to as much pop music as I know the four of us have the three of us sitting here and you have and you care about it, you do eventually take stuff apart to see how it was put together. And I guess that's one of my real loves in, in not just songwriting, but just in listening to pop music is taking things apart and seeing how they were put together and, and trying to apply those lessons. Uh, and Greg is a pretty hard taskmaster. I mean, if, if I'm pretty happy with a part and the way it goes in a song, he'll be like, you know what? It's a good part, but you're stepping on the vocal line. Well, hey, and this is Greg. I think the toughest part, um, of that transition, like John said, of going from demo to finished product in the studio and that studio process is when you're sitting there playing a song, whether it's on a guitar or writing a song, rather, where if it's on a guitar or a piano, you're trying to fill all the space with whatever that instrument is you're writing on. But when you get to the studio and start putting the song together, that is not necessarily the case. There's a lot of other instrumentation, generally speaking, going on. So you have to, you have to learn to, to take parts out really. And, um, and, and, and highlight whatever it is you're trying to highlight, which is normally the vocal. Well, that's what I think producers came into being. Mm -hmm. That's the reason they came into being. Bands would play in a studio live, like the Beatles did for their first album. They all, all play at the same time. Never heard of them. And they got done. <laughs> they got done with the record, and or they got done with the take, and then the producer would have, have to referee, because everybody thought their parts were wonderful. And the producer would say, well, you need to back off here, or let's do this there. Um, but we have with multi-track recording the ability to go back and say, okay, I love what you're doing in the verses, but in the chorus, could you do this? Or could you do something different? And I think the ability to say that, especially when you don't have an outside person listening among the three of you and, and to agree on it. 
We'll see about that. Crucial. Yeah, that's crucial. It's it's tough. I mean, you know, when we're sitting there at the mixing phase, you know, there may be a lot more tracked than what you end up hearing on the recording, of course, because that those decisions get made. Hey, let's mute this. Do we like it better with it with it I out? I spent all day recording it, man. <laughs> right. We spent a whole it. day on that, remember? But uh, sometimes it has to go. In a general sense, does someone have last say? Is it the person who brought the song to the table? We propose that it's a democratic decision, Dave, but, but, you know, we usually like to have all three people say, yes, that's the right. We want to be able to, to end a session or a record or a, even a lunch date with all agreeing on it. But sometimes, and, and this is why we made a decision on the last record. Sometimes you do have to have somebody in charge. And so for the last record, those decisions if it wasn't a strong preference by the original songwriter, because of course there's three of us and each one kind of brings in the germ of a song and then we work on it together. Um, if, it, if it wasn't a really strong preference of the songwriter, we kind of deferred to Greg on this last record. He's promised me it's going to be my turn next time. But <laughs> that was the agreement. <laughs> right. <laughs> just want to say that. Make sure For the record. Now it's on record. record. Yeah. But uh, you know, I mean, I don't know how you do it, Dave, because you're doing all this as as engineer, artist, songwriter, and producer of your own stuff, and it, it's it's amazing. Uh, well, thank you. I I, I don't want to make this about me, but I do understand those things. But what I end up doing is I have to listen to them for days and hours and weeks, and and then put it away and come back to it and say, okay, now let's not be so precious about that. You know, what would my drummer friends say? What would my keyboard player friends say? You know, and you know. The things that people are critical about, we know what they are. It's it's hard to get out of your own way sometimes, isn't it? Because you get you're so close to it. I mean, it's your baby. Um, and in our case, it's it's pretty similar. We've we've often thought, you know, having an outside arranger, producer, especially, um, would would give a you know a different perspective. It's as, I mean, you said there's one thing producers do. There's so many that they can do. In the old days, I think they did a lot more arranging, but nowadays just having a different set of ears on it. Well, you might get somewhere faster because you're not waiting for somebody to try everything that they have in their head to try. Um, you know, with the producer, <laughs> you've says, been through hangabout sessions. <laughs> yeah. Somebody says, somebody says, uh, this is your strong point here. This is the thing you need to do. Follow that. Don't even try the other things because that's where we're going. And then you just, everybody gets on that train and it's faster. first thing I heard from you guys was Illustrated Bird and, um, and Roman Forum, which we're going to get to later. We're going to do a couple song breakdowns in a little bit, but wow, I was attracted to the fact that you don't strum. You don't just sit and strum the chords. Now, there are times when you strum along, but mostly you invent parts, even on the keyboard, that are just specifically here. I'm going to poke right here. I'm going to put something in right there. I'm going to step back, not play anything for a minute, play another little. And it's wonderful. Um, Thank you. Especially on the new album. I hear 
uh, sax pop in and then it's gone. And I hear a, a, a flourish on the piano when it's gone. And really tasty synth patches. You choose your patches really, really well. So that was the second thing I noticed. And I really appreciate about you guys is that a lot of people, when it comes to adding a keyboard, when the, when keyboard isn't their main instrument, they know how to use it in a very canned way, mm-hmm. like adding canned strings. Oh, I'm going to play wherever my three fingers in one hand can play open chords or triads, you know, and nothing special. There's nothing that's thought out to be orchestrated, but you guys don't do that. So I just wanted to say, um, if anybody's listening to their music for the first time, notice these things and put the headphones on for sure. Absolutely. Put the headphones on for the Hangabouts albums. It's awful nice compliments. A lot of great things you're saying there, David. And I'm glad you noticed that it, you know, Greg and I do most of the, the engineering production work and, and we spend a lot of time, not that we don't force Chip to sit there and torture him listening to this, but we do spend a lot of time working through those details. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's for us kind of because it amuses us, <laughs> but it's great that other people notice. I think the best music is what we make for ourselves, not what we make to try to be a hit or for somebody else's benefit. If we don't entertain ourselves, it's, it's going to fail. Oh, absolutely. And th- this is Chip, but uh, honestly, David, you know, the, the, watching these two guys go through that is, is fascinating. Um, they, they, do, they spend a lot of time trying to come up with something that uh, is interesting to them. Um, and it's, you know, 100% of the time, it, it's interesting to me after they've come up with it. But they spend a lot of time trying to come up with that stuff. Well, I get... You know, this is Greg. I get bored pretty easily. So, you know, a lot of times the like, it's, by my, the, time, it's, it's by my, the time the intro is over. He's bored usually. It's it's my fault if there's like little things like maybe too much of little things all over the place because it's like, hey, don't we need something there? But John, John, I think John is just as guilty as I do. And we have very similar musical tastes. Um, and um, that that kind of, uh, you know, uh, leads us in that direction a lot of times. We call it kitchen sink productions. <laughs> As we're moving toward the formation of the Hangabouts, let's talk about Suburban Hi-Fi and any uh, role that Nashville played in the whole thing. Um, yeah, it's Greg again. I can, I'll, I'll start the story. Um, I'll try to keep it brief. So, you know, um, for, I, and for 10 years, I lived in Nashville, Tennessee, um, and, and Chip did as well, actually. And, I, I, you know, a lot of people don't know this outside of this room, Dave, but uh, Chip and I have actually known each other well, I won't say how long, but a long time. <laughs> um, we we had met each other at a record store, and um, you know, considered ourselves uh, songwriters. And we we were trying to throw our our hat and pun intended into the ring of Nashville songwriting. Um, I guess you know maybe twenty years ago or something like that, and moved to Nashville and and you know did that whole thing for a while, and. Um, you know, you learn a lot of stuff doing that, but, you know, one of the things I learned is, you know, um, I prefer writing with, um, people that I like <laughs> rather than people that, you know, that, that, that you may randomly meet. There's a comfort level, I think with your, uh, with your buddies, um, that you write with that, you know, you don't find with somebody else. But, you know, one of the things that came out of it is I started a, you know, I started a record down there 
like, okay, well, I think if I'm going to get something done, I just need to start recording myself. So I started this and then very, you know, quickly, um, you know, into the process or short time into the process, I got John involved. Um, because yeah, I, it's funny because I never, <laughs> I was never really clear on how early on in the process that was. It, it felt like it was moving along with a lot of energy when I got involved. It was pretty quick. I mean, you know, I got to a point where it's like, you know, like you do, and 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 you know this, Dave. You get to a point where you're where you're like, I don't know. Maybe I don't know where this is going. <laughs> I need a hand here to uh to help to help you know put this in perspective. So that's when John got involved, and John still lived in Michigan at the time. So there was some long distance. Uh, things happening to make that first um, suburban hi-fi record, which is really, I mean, even though the name is different, it really, it turns out that it's the, basically the first hangabouts project. You said you don't know what you have sometimes. We all start with a thread, a title, a chorus, a verse, an idea, characters, or musical ideas. And as they start to form, you know you've got a song. You know you've got something that's worth taking past your journal. And that's when you get to a point where it's make or break. Are we going to finish it? Or are we going to need help? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think it's funny how, you know, depending on, on what your songwriting style is, how it, how it informs each song. Like for me, it's almost 100% um, melody comes first. And I think John, if I'm not mistaken, I see you, you play music a lot. And I think that it leads somewhere. Yeah. Slightly, usually different origins for me. Um, it's funny, Dave. I, I don't know how you are being a keyboard guy first. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's your, your first instrument and strongest, right, Dave? It is, but I write 50, 50, right, right. But I don't write as a guitarist. I write as a guy looking for, for sound. And that's what I was just going to say is the sound, it's always, um, it's, it's, for me, it's a lot of times around harmonic structure and, and literally yep. sounds. Uh, and I've always been fascinated with those, just how chords go together and how a synthesizer can have different sounds or a guitar can have different sounds. And so like Greg said, he, he often, or almost always, I think you said, start with a melody. Uh, and very often I do too, but a lot I of times... I think it's probably 90, 10, 90 yeah. to 10 for me. Yeah. Um, and it's probably 50-50 for me. Of course, melody is important. You don't have really a song without a melody. I guess correctly that chip is the opposite. You know, when I come to it, uh, it's it's back to you know what you described as as the idea. You know, the observation of the person. Uh, what are you writing about? Yeah, what am I writing about? And and what you know, what lyric? Um, what do you want to say? What do I want to say? And what and get across with it? Um, so mine is more of a you know a guitar strum with. Uh, a focus on on getting my point across or or being able to express what it is I'm trying to express. But each of you have brought things to the table to start for the new album, right? Uh, oh, sure. I, yeah. Yes, I did. And and, and I, I rely on these two guys for, you know, the melodies and the 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 nuances and the 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 
the neat little things that they make the song come alive, really. Yeah. That makes me even more surprised, really. Not everybody's born with all sides of songwriting built in. So when you're given somebody else's lyric, you didn't even write the lyric and you've got to put a melody to it. That's a different, that's a different set of muscles. It's hard. And it is hard. It's not as hard when it's your own. No, you're right. You have to get inside of somebody else's head and you, you need permission, either mm-hmm. implicit or explicit, to make changes. Mm-hmm. And uh, Well, Elton John doesn't. Yeah, that's the first thing that came to my head when you when we started talking about this is the is obviously the Elton John Bernie Taupin thing, which I guess yeah. is a lot of people's reference like that. It's amazing that he could take a you know some words written on a piece of paper and build a song around it. There's different kinds of partnerships, you know. Um, the Indigo Girls they each write complete songs and bring them to each other, and then they they become Indigo Girls songs by how they put them together. But they're finished; they're essential songs when they bring them to the table. Um, but Elton John would break, would get a lyric from Bernie completely finished. And he doesn't change probably a word except that um, he might do something like, I'm going to be high as a cat by then. So the, the word high ends up getting seven syllables or something. You know? mm-hmm. Well, that's what I always loved about it. It's funny you should mention that because just like just last week, I was thinking about the, I read it in a magazine. It's like, that, like how does that happen? It's like, well, it happens because he already had the melody. And he had to make the words stretch to fit it. <laughs> it's, it's fantastic because mm-hmm. it's like, it, it, I don't think it would happen outside of that, maybe outside of that working relationship. Well, and, and, and to, 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 to extend that point a little bit, Dave, you know, if I were to bring a, an idea and a lyric and these guys would come up with, you know, just a killer melody or something else to change it, I, I've got no qualms with with trying to rewrite the lyric as long as I can get to, you know, make sure I'm still getting the point across. I wanted to get across. I think the best example of us working in that vein was chip came in with, uh, all day, all what became all day, all night. I don't remember if it had a working title, but I think it was, it was pretty like a lot of the lyrics were hammered out. Greg and, and chip hammered out lyrics right. from chips original. That's right. That, that thing came in the door as like a kinks, we were trying to do a kinks thing and we got onto the record as it. a hall and oats yeah. uh, all day uh, all night yeah mm-hmm. i hear what you mean yeah with the saxophone you know that, that's got the saxophone you were talking about yeah um and a little bit of the 80s vibe So let's talk about The Odd Mess, which is the first uh, or the only album I'm aware of by Suburban Hi-Fi. Yeah, that was recorded in, like I said, in Nashville. Um, like the, I did the drums and some of the other basic stuff in Nashville and then actually brought the whole rig up here to Michigan to John's basement and we kind of finished it. Well, more explain or less how here. you happened to be in both places. Were you, did you move back? Were you no. sitting there? It was a crazy, <laughs> no, I, a, I came up one weekend or was, maybe two weekends. I can't remember. And it felt like, like a 29 hour day. <laughs> You're living here and working at Arnold Williams. You moved down to Nashville, yep. started recording this album, took a, took a trip back to Michigan to John's to have him help you with it. Yeah, very specifically. It was, uh, you know, I had, I had gotten into the project and I was, you know, at first I thought it was going to be a whole 
kind of LP and it turned out to be an EP, but you know, there were basically, you know, six or seven songs that I, you know, like I said, I had basic tracks recorded for, you know, put the whole rig in the back of the, of the car and drove up here uh, over a weekend. And John and I basically set up a, uh, a makeshift studio. What kind of rig? Um, you know, it was, it was a basic four, four input. Was that your lexicon interface? interface? Yeah, it was like a lexicon four input interface with like, I think running Cubase, I want to say at the time. If any of you, if any of you gearheads are out there, <laughs> this is pre pro tools for us. And, yeah. um, and yeah, I mean, that was, that was pretty much it. Some microphones and I he had already, you'd already tracked the drums mostly at your track, the drums basement. at my place. Yeah. Like every night after dinner, you'd go down. Yeah. Like you told me in your <laughs> basement studio, play drums, played to a click. Yeah. Well, well, if you, if you really want to, you know, get bored with the process, it was me, you know, wrote the song, sat down with a click and played guitar and vocal just to, get to, to a right. click, just to get the form right. there, played the whole song through and then went back and overdubbed drums and whatever else ba- onto drums it. became the first basic track and i think we used drum all those original drum tracks yeah for better or for worse all those yeah. original <laughs> drum tracks were me were me pounding out drums with without knowing how to use cubase um and uh oh it's brave i don't i don't touch drum kits and it's because i'm afraid that i'll be doing it all wrong and somebody will know oh i think it's pretty easy for any drummer to spot uh, yeah. that it was a uh, a guitar player playing drums on that record but um but i didn't i didn't know any drummer so i that's how you do it right you go into it and it's like well i, I don't even mean just the playing what about the miking miking he could do yeah i mean i had no pro audio background that i you know that kind of had a, a pretty good and i've been doing it for studio. so long you worked in a recording studio didn't you for i worked sure, yeah I, I worked in a recording studio i went to school a little bit for it and i you know and i've basically been recording things since i was, was old enough to steal my mom's you know little uh note recorder the panasonic little uh cassette thing to record stuff onto i guess it didn't hurt working in the music store that you guys did uh you pretty much had your fingers uh, all over everything in the store everything that came in you get to look at it and try it yeah no that's definitely true great memories from that that store um yeah and, and the people i mean just not to to get too sentimental but some of the people that we worked with are still friends to this day it was a real Real cool vibe. And of course, and you probably know this, Dave, but Arnold Williams Music was one of the two or three stores that were really held in super high regard in the Detroit area. So we felt lucky and blessed to uh, to work there. And uh, and like you say, you know, it was a synthesizer store. So whenever new high-tech synths came out, Arnold Williams would always be at the front end of getting it. So we got to learn synthesizers and, and, uh, and digital recording. And like you say, a lot of good cool equipment passed through our, our store. One of the things I think that is a byproduct of that is that you got quality. We couldn't afford it. Don't, don't get me wrong. We could never afford any of this stuff, but we did get to play around with it while we are at work. Do you borrow stuff? Take yeah, it we actually could. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to give you a, an idea of how deep this, this friendship and this band kind of goes, Dave, the first track on the Suburban Hi-Fi EP is something Greg and I wrote. When did... When yeah. was that? Yeah, that was during the Nashville days. Well, was it really? Yeah. So the song called Home that's on the, the Suburban Hi-Fi Odd Mess is something him, Greg, and I wrote. So most of that stuff's your Greg's stuff. And was it Algernon you wrote with John? and Algernon, Yeah, Algernon was written with, with John and 
the um, odd mess. mess. The odd mess is, well, yeah, for it's, what it's worth, yeah, is written with John. 30 second outro. I think, yeah. um, and then yeah. the rest are yours. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, people always, I mean, I don't think I've ever written anything by myself. I mean, there's always input from somebody else. So when you're looking at the change from Suburban Hi-Fi to, to Hangabouts, why'd you bother changing the name? Actually, for a minute, we thought about keeping the same name. I feel like we went into that, what became the Illustrated Bird, which was originally going to be called Cedar Apple Rust. Um, I like it. Yeah. Well, there's a, there's a, uh, <laughs> you like even more that there's a unfinished or almost unfinished piece called the Cedar Apple Rust, which is a trilogy. It's very spinal tap. <laughs> it's, it's a, uh, supposed to be a psychedelic kind of a trilogy, uh, suite, I guess is a better way to put it. And, uh, as long as there's costumes. Yeah, well, there, there could, yes, there could be costumes. I mean, for those of us that were going to be wearing clothes at all, but the, <laughs> The concept of that album was a little bit different than the, and Greg might get insulted, the post-punk Americana sound of Suburban Hi-Fi. We wanted to take Algernon and explore that part a little more. So I think that's one of the reasons why Hangabouts became the the theme or the new form instead of keeping Suburban. Because we always thought Suburban Hi-Fi could resurface. Yeah, I wouldn't argue with that origin story. Dang thought you were going to see a live fight. <laughs> you guys apologize to each other, and then you, then you upset, and the other person says, no, I agree. Right? <laughs> it's just like the, the theme so far. Okay. Psychology 101 right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, I can't remember anything before November, and I don't recall anything before the The Illustrated Bird record was completed and Chip came in and saved it from the ash heap of history (laughs) by pushing us really hard to get it released. And we actually remixed and mastered that record after it was completely done and released digital only. He pushed us because he liked it so much to have us release it on a proper CD. So we took another year, something maybe, like that, almost yeah. a year to do that. So, so Chip wasn't involved in the songwriting, but without Chip, that album never would have been ever played on the radio or, or come to the light of day. All right. So now in the Hangabouts, uh, very soon after that, we've got Chip in the band. And I'm going to make some statements here as a listener as someone who has gotten familiar with your songs enough to actually learn them to say what I think and you feel free to stomp all over me, but um, we have to start somewhere in describing music. But I hear in your music, the monkeys. And I say that with complete love and respect minus the comedy. Greg's smile. We're all smiling and looking at Greg. The monkeys had like the best songwriters in the world writing for them. But there's times when I hear Mike Nesmith. There's times when I hear um, Mickey Dolan singing. I hear style touches, and I hear they're very well produced. That's fascinating well, for me to hear. I'll I'll take that as the highest compliment. I mean, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, we're of we're all of the age where, um, you know, we were watching reruns of the Monkees. Uh, certainly, I was uh, after school, and um, have always been a fan, and uh, have always. Um, 
listened even when it wasn't maybe the coolest thing in the world to be listening to the monkeys. Um, I don't think that these guys are, are immune to that either. No, certainly not. I hear not. a song like, all men must have someone, have someone who never... That's an amazing song, right? It's not... You don't think of it as, oh, it's the monkeys. The monkeys sound like monkeying around. It's an amazing song. It's Mike Nesmith. Um, that's what this is like. When I hear your music, I hear uh, really, really good, strong songs, but really well produced. And they're not like, none of them are like each other. They're all different. Uh, to me, it's fascinating that you drew that out of there because it's, I never, it just never would have occurred to me that they would be an influence I'd have listed, but it, it obviously, and, and maybe it didn't come through me, but it certainly obviously came through Greg because it's, it's wired into his genes at this point, I think. Mm-hmm. I think there are times where I purposefully try to probably sing like Mickey Dolan's, even though I couldn't come close. Oh, I hear it. It's certainly part of the influence. Yeah. And I know in the, in the, in the process of recording this kits and cats and sex and wives, Dave, there was, there were comments when we were recording vocals, like do the, try and do the Dolan's thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah for kits and cats, it was definitely more intentional yeah. for illustrated bird. I don't remember the monkeys ever coming up like, I don't remember seeing anybody say monkeys in your interviews before this either. Did, did anybody bring it up in interviews? That's fascinating. Yeah, that's, yeah, like John said, that's that's interesting you pulled that out, Dave. Yeah, good ear. Yeah, good ear. I'm glad that you liked it and yeah. you weren't offended. No, no. Um, one of the characteristics of your songs is that um, you like to throw in unexpected chord changes. You don't stick to diatonic chords, which, thank you, thank you. <laughs> And um, you like playing with parallel majors and minors. Right. Drives me crazy, but that's a lo- uh, some of that's Greg. A lot of times. I, I think it was mostly John, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, um, we call John P- PCS, <laughs> Professional Chord Services. Yeah. <laughs> chord doctor. Yeah, things like you're talking about where where he'll come in with a song that's like E major, G major, B flat major, and he'll be singing a melody over it. And I'm just scratching my head, maybe head and hands at the piano thinking, how are we going to make this work and flow? But that's, I mean, that that is a lot of the sounds of psychedelic rock and the 60s rock is is getting a little bit away from the Tin Pan Alley tradition of, you know, 36251 and going into... Um, you know, just experimenting with sounds, taking it like Greg says, he starts with a melody and then just puts chords over top of it. And then we produce it from there. For me personally, um, there's been a little bit of an evolution because I, I'm a, I consider myself just like a guitar strummer. And as I've written more, and especially for kids and cats and sacks and wives, the last record, I wrote more and more on piano and, and it certainly changes the way that you think about chords. Absolutely. And same thing with me playing guitar. I don't, I don't think about every note that I'm playing. I'm listening for a certain thing. I'm, I want a certain kind of relationship between the notes. And I, I know how to find them with my fingers and I play it and then I have to memorize it. 
isn't it funny you when you hear you re, I know you do a lot of reading about other songwriters and and you research whenever you do your interviews. Isn't it interesting when you hear a songwriter describe say the bridge of a song and they say, "Oh, that was written on piano. The rest of the song was written on guitar." And you either kind of figured that out beforehand that that was the case or or once they said that you realized, "Oh, of course." Those are chords that only a piano player, like hold on loosely is, a, is one I was thinking of. You know that story, right? It's, yeah. it's um, in the bridge, the, the, not the bridge, the middle eight of that song. It's very abrupt shift to piano type chords that, uh, that really add a lot to the song. Other, otherwise, just a kind of a guitar song. Did you know I brought that song up in my, la- in, uh, my last interview? Uh-huh. Oh no, I didn't. Yeah, I was, I'm not caught up on your podcast. <laughs> no, it wasn't my podcast. I was being interviewed, and I named it as one of my favorite pop songs because I oh, love the way well, it works. Not even a guilty pleasure, right? Just a pleasure. Yeah. yeah. A pleasure. What are some of your songwriting habits or tendencies? And I want to talk about things like a journal and what you do separately, and when you make the decision to bring something to someone else. Well, well. A lot of my stuff is, you know, again, when I come to the songwriting table, it's, it's you know, banging out some chords and, and trying to get uh, an idea down. So most of my stuff being idea driven is notes on an iPad. You know, just I have I have just a I'm sure, you know, in the old days that you scribbled it in a notebook. But but now it's just so easy to keep track of you know, anything you observe during the day or here in a restaurant or um, think of, you know, before you go to bed or, you know, wake up in the middle of the night and just kind of get the, uh, the germ of the idea down. Uh, and I find myself going to that for lyric all the time. So, well, at some point you have to decide what kind of song it is in terms of sound. And you probably want to do that before you even get it to the partners, but maybe you don't. In my case, I always have a production model. That's what I call it. And in some, at some point in the development of the song, I decide this is going to be a blank song. Fill in the blank. It could be an artist. It could be a style of a song. It could be a song you've heard before. It could be a guitar sound in a song, like there you really got me a guitar sound. And you say, well, I'm going to do that in this one. I somehow. think some of our best... The ones we like the best, some of our best um, recordings do have that, where we had a clear vision of the sound. And sometimes it changes, too. Um, there are complete demos of some songs that we put on the record in completely different styles that um, we call them demos, but in fact, we probably spent 30 or 40 hours on them. They were just alternate, really, productions. But those are when you're working through the concept and you don't have a clear idea, or you have a clear idea and you get to the end and you realize, you know what? I think we can do better. What if we changed it? And you said the kinks, what if we changed it and made it into a kinks sounding song? But what- I think that that's takes an enormous amount of patience. And even if you have the patience, you all three have to have it at the same time. I don't well, think we have it anymore. That kind of patience. Well, in, 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 in Dave, the, uh, you know, a couple of examples from this last record, at least for me, I thought, I thought the title track when it, you know, you know, Greg, yeah, Greg and John wrote that. And I think from the get go, that thing, we knew how that was going to sound. Yeah. Um, Mrs. Kite, on the other hand, 
you know, Greg and I started working on that thing and it was going to be in animals. Yeah. We're going to, we're going to ape the animals. And I was, I was totally trying to ape the animals and John wouldn't let me, but it was, you know, it was, it started out with the same, don't, don't let me be misunderstood, um, rhythm part. And, uh, would have been good. I thought it worked. Yeah. And that thing, we just worked that through several different changes before it got to what you hear on the record. Well, Thank goodness you didn't make it the same as Let's Get It On. (laughs) (laughs) Don't tempt me. It's trouble right now. All right, so now I want to talk about eclecticism versus accessibility. And um, the reason I'm doing that is because I'm going to go ahead and label you as eclectic. Mm-hmm. And you can argue with me, as I said. I think that your songs, you don't have a sound as a band that says, the hangabouts sound like this. That's not something that would mm-hmm. be easy for people to do. Um, they can say qualities that you have. Um, so in terms of categorization, I think the hangabouts catalog is more eclectic than it is of a single focus style. And I like that because I get bored if anything, if everything sounds the same. Also, it tends to be less restrictive and more timeless. By the way, this is my Terry Gross, a long, long build <laughs> yeah, up. No, yeah, it's, <laughs> I was hoping we were going to get one of those. <laughs> Let's face it. Although the internet has created more music discovery platforms, it's also created a glut of people who are trying to be heard all at the same time. In some ways, I think being eclectic is the opposite of being commercial. If a band isn't specializing in one style and saying, we sound like this, or we can be found out of this music category, it would arguably make it more challenging for people to find and latch on to your music. In addition to that, you have more than one lead singer, although you have one main lead singer. Yeah. So how much of your eclecticism is by design and how much of it is purely a result of your genetic makeup? Well, that's a that's a very good question, Dave. That is your Terry Gross uh, a question. Um, I you know I think that we all of us have so many different influences. Let me preface all this by saying we don't really have a band, and and that is part of what informs all these songs. Is that we don't have a drummer, a a, a full time drummer in the Hangabouts. We have a, a we have a like a gigging drummer that we play with. Uh, and there are other drummers that have recorded on the record uh, or on the records. Josh Touchton. Yeah. Josh Touchton. Um, Ted, Ted, Ted Bishop plays on it. I play on him. Jeff Hupp. Jeff Hupp plays on one. We have canned drums on some things. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
because of that, it certainly, you know, uh, I think adds to the, to the eclecticism. Um, you know, part of it, I think, is just it, all of us liking so many different things. Um, you know, I always appreciated, you know, the fact that whether it was the Beatles or Prince or whoever, they were always trying to push things from album to album and, and you know, what's the next one going to be? You know, you're always so excited. I know that, I know it's not going to sound like the last record. Um, I know that much. It's going to, you know, they're going to push the envelope and it's going to be something different. Um, so I think that's, you know, certainly, and, and, you know, what, uh, influences, uh, all of our work part partially at least. And I think, yeah. And I think it is, I think intentionality is part of it. We do, um, it's, it's almost a, a joke or a farce when we take a song and say, Oh, let's do our, I don't know, pick an influence. Let's do this one as let's do our Prince thing on this one, or let's do our fountains of Wayne. Our, yeah. Our fountains of Wayne. We're famous for that ripping those guys off. But that, that definitely is a part intentionally of being eclectic. I, you know, you're familiar with like apples of stereo and the elephant six collective down in actually not no down in Athens. They, they take that to an extreme, I think in a way that I really appreciate appreciate it's it's we use the word psychedelic a lot and maybe you're even going to talk about that what we mean when we say psychedelic isn't like dropping acid and going to a noodly grateful dead jam for 35 minutes it means taking the sounds of 1966 and 67 and 68 and the ideas and the experimentation and chord changes and dukes of the stratosphere yes taking that and and applying it to to current songs that we're writing and that results in eclecticism all right so part b of my multi-part terry gross question how do you balance eclecticism with making sure your music is accessible or do you i don't think we do i know greg probably thinks about commercial appeal more than i do you said accessibility, and I said commercial uh, appeal, and I, same th- same thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, they're function of the same thing. I don't think I'll just reference a song that we that came that was on the last record, selling out. Um, you know, the 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 song's tongue in cheek because you know personally, I don't think there's anything wrong with what some people, you know, ter- you know, deem selling out um, formula formula or you know any of the any of the singles that were successful in the, in the past 60 years of pop music history um i mean you, you know people laugh at them it's like there were millions of people bought those records for a reason um and um you know just because a song is catchy um it doesn't mean that it doesn't have some uh authenticity to it or you know or any of the other thing i mean sometimes it doesn't <laughs> i'm not saying it automatically does but it's you know it, it doesn't automatically you can't say well that was successful so th- therefore it must be inauthentic yeah there's that there's well there's that that balance between i mean you you want people to hear your music right i mean you, that's that's why you're a musician i mean that's why you record stuff i know you can you can make the argument of we're making it for us and as long as we like it you know, we don't really care what anybody else thinks, but but the thing is, being like everybody else isn't always a plus. Being formula, being comfortable, being familiar—that's not always what you want to be. You want to be unique and different. The Kinks weren't like anybody else. They had their, you know, early days, but they developed into something that was very different. And I think being different is is a, a virtue. Definitely. The thing is, it's harder for people to get their heads around because everybody, everything is short attention span theater. So question three, in fact, 
can a songwriter afford to be eclectic today? Well, you say afford, and I mean, we're dancing around the, the three cent question here. I mean, who's, who's making money doing this? I mean, we're not, the only thing at stake is, is having some people hear the song. I mean, these records cost us money to make, you know, absolutely. They're not, they're not generating any revenue. So you do it because you like it and you hope other people like it. And I guess we, we also, well, I think you want your peers to like it, right? I mean, I think that's the thing. It's like, it doesn't matter if how many people like it, but you want people that you, you, that you think are important. You know, we want Dave Caruso to like it. Right. (laughs) And we have a, well, well, it's true. There's, there's a audience for our material and, and we know in general terms, kind of, who that audience is, we would, don't get me wrong. If sinking feeling, uh, if somebody heard it in Nashville and said, we want to put it on the next Miranda Lambert, Lambert record, we'd be thrilled, but that's not the driving force behind the hangabouts. And I mean, you know, we enjoy listening to interesting stuff. We want to make interesting stuff that, that, uh, you know, people with a, a musicality to them, you know, appreciate. That was the perfect tag ending, Chip. Way, way to walk in there and be an MVP. All right. I was sweeping that thing. I want you to be who you are. And there's a reason for doing it. And I want people who are listening, who are also songwriters, to feel they can do it too. And, and you're right. There is nothing to lose. Yeah, for sure. No. So, so you might as well write what you love. And we have, I think we're, we're over any kind of, uh, hopefully mostly over any kind of ego-driven um, I don't know, trying to play rock star thing. I'm uh, not. <laughs> <laughs> I said mostly. <laughs> Shut up, it's my turn to talk. <laughs> uh, let's talk about some songs individually, one at a time here. I'm going to start with um, Roman Forum because it's near and dear to my heart. This was, I think, the first song I heard by you guys, and I heard it before I even know who you were. It was on Jeffrey's show, the big show. Right. Okay. Pop that goes crunch. Yep. Pop that goes crunch radio. I loved it immediately and had to buy it immediately. What I love about it is it's such an authentic slice of life, lyrically. Courtney was a straight A student until she met Dave. He worked at the tool and die. They met at a Cody. They said the date her mom was yelling out the door. I hope you got a better plan than me and your old man. It was over so quick, they didn't throw the prize. I hope the pictures turned out. While we were waiting at the Roman Forum Screaming at the Roman Forum We were wishing them well The way you do When you hope that the love is true People often talk and they say It's just I get chills, literally not figuratively, but the real way you're supposed to use the word literally every time I hear the song. 
Thanks. Jeez, thank you, Dave. It's also about a real place it in is. Michigan. It, it is, is, yeah. Driven by that building. It's a big building and used to host weddings and, and you could eat dinner there. Did you ever play there? You probably played a gig there, I'm sure. I never did. Oh, it's a shame. Well, this is going back to the, you know, to the Canton uh, reference where, where Arnold Williams music was, but John and I were, were again, literally the way you're supposed to use the word driving, by, <laughs> driving by the Roman forum. And it looked like, I mean, they had, it was closed at that point. It was, it was, not a good, it, was good times. it was boarded up or, or pretty darn close to being boarded up when we drove by it. And, and, you know, we're like it again, you know, you, it's a shame when those things happen, when, when, when these kind of institutions, um, go away and, and, you even know, terrible it, Italian restaurants, even a, ter- even a terrible restaurants is just sad. So, you know, immediately it affected John and I, and we started writing a song right in the car there. I, I um, think we, if my recollection is, and this is hazy, but I think we may have had most of the, like some of the verses done by the time we got from there back. Oh, certainly here. Yeah. Yeah, and it was a that was but a, that had to have some lyrics in the beginning in its in its early part. That couldn't have been music first. It was lyrics. Oh, first. that was that was lyrics. We were dr- literally again yeah. using the word not figuratively. <laughs> we were literally driving in the car together, I th- singing a melody out, which I think probably is the yeah. melody of the that verse. That came right then. Yeah, it came right. For, that was right from the beginning. Yeah, and and the words were fifty Coming fifty. I now, think you, that was, I think that I'm just going to say, I could tell. Yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't know I was right, but I could tell. It was, you know, f- funny enough, that was, it's one of the songs we had the most fun writing and one of the most authentic sounding and feeling songs that we, we I'm always happy when people say they like it because it's one of our, it's one of my favorites, at least. Oh, you ours. name drop the Tigers? That's right. Bobby Lane. That's right. Yeah. And Dave, Dave, as an observation, you know, not having anything to do with that song, um, I, I I feel the same way about it that that you do. But the, from a songwriting angle, one of the things that 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 uh, I admire about it is that you know that name thing. You know, dropping Tony and dropping Genie and and all these names. It, it seems to be like a uh, maybe a a trick that a lot of guys try to use that they don't really pull it off. You know, right? Uh, but they did because that's—I mean—that—that's a story that everybody knows, right? You got these. We all grew these up two, with those. Yeah, people. we all grew up with those people. Mm-hmm. But to be able to get it into a song that turns around and, and gives people chills when they hear it, or goosebumps, or whatever, I think was just a you know home run. We all grew up with people who have stories. Yeah, getting one one story that's a composite with fictional names or names we borrow, making it all sound good together—that's art. That's very very tough to do yeah okay, there, there's not a thing now. in that that song i would change you know it gets down to the end and it's the statue of venus was gone i just i think is a bam you know another home run yeah it's funny how i you know i know i admire, admired this about there's a guy named ron sexsmith who's a songwriter canadian i was gonna say it could have been a ron sexsmith song <laughs> yeah you took the out of my mouth. yeah i mean i always admired how he can be so specific and 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 you're like how would this relate to everybody else? But it, it's, somehow it relates to, to everything. He writes a song that's like, how do you write this song like Pretty Little Cemetery, which has these very specific references in it. And yet at the end of it, you're like, whoa, you know, it really affects you because um, it seems so universal, even though, you know, in its, in its, uh, in its specificity. Yeah, another right? guy, Freddie Johnson, same way. I was thinking yeah, of Freddie too. Character, yep. Character-driven songs that he just somehow he makes them work. Roman Forum was the first one I was involved with with Greg that 
we told we actually told a story. Uh, there's a couple things we'd written before then, and they either devolved into psychedelic nonsense, which I'm using that in the kindest, most generous possible terms because I'm a big fan of it. But you know, I love "I Am the Walrus," right, by the Beatles. Yep. But it doesn't tell a story, right? Eleanor Rigby tells a story, and that's we were. Rowan Forum was influenced by that storytelling. Uh, you know, Fountains of Wayne are great at that. Adam and Chris write storytelling songs, and there's definitely a thought of trying to make sure we at least once told a co- coherent story. And I'm glad you you think we pulled it off. Oh, you more than pulled it off. If you take a look at movies that do tricks to pull on your heartstrings, there are movies we know what they are, right? And they manipulate you. If you feel manipulated, you feel cheated. Right. There's no manipulation going on here. It's all authentic. Hmm. That's Yeah. I, we know sentimental songs, right? Yeah, of course. There's all kinds of sentimental songs. If the song sneaks up on you, then it's brilliant. Yeah, for sure. I'm glad we, I'm glad we laid that trap for everybody. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Let's talk about She Hates You. I saw your girl on the train. She wanted me to find you and explain After many hours I could ascertain She hates you I know how you feel okay There's really nothing else that you can say So why don't you hide it away Um, this one is, this is, this one's, you know, obviously this one is, is, uh, was a derivative, uh, <laughs> song, um, based on she loves you. And this, I mean, this one, if there's one sentence that sums it up, it's, it's very simple, um, as you know, what would happen in she loves you if, if your buddy that you're, uh, your buddy who, who is supposed to be, uh, your liaison <laughs> to your, to your girl actually is, is maybe kind of a jerk, right? Um, and, and the whole song is just based around that concept. It's mainly Greg's idea. I think I probably chipped in with a little bit. Oh lyric, yeah, I think you did lyrically quite a bit. I'd, I'd have to look through it specifically to see where, but it, it is conceptually, it's great. First of all, just the idea that you're taking "She Loves You" by the Beatles and and rewriting it as "She Hates You." So there's, it's right out of the gate. You've got something to work with. But then the uh, the story, the 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 twist in the story. Um, and then I think probably your ear tells you that harmonically and melodically, there's some tricks we play that, uh, that give you some musical hints that, that it came from. She loves you as well. Nice. That was a fun one to that do. That was fun. Yeah. It was just, there's nothing that serious about that song. Kids and cats and sacks Well, um, your next album after that was Kits and Cats. 
And here's where Chip joins us uh, in terms of participation in the album. And I'm going to go down and name my favorite songs, and uh, we'll talk about them a little bit. First one is Evelyn Wood. And uh, if you haven't heard it already, it's very much um, in the in the style of a squeeze song. In fact, at the very end, thing which is just tagged on for no reason. It doesn't even need to be there. It's like an outro, and. Should have heard what we tried to put it. Which mean? <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, that's interesting, Dave. That 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 outro was that that outro was was uh, was was all over that song in many different places. That's a that's a testament to Greg post production, self mixing, self editing. Moved it all over. That's discipline to pull that out and say we're only going to do it there because the intro is less what it seems. Um, the guy's not in a hurry. In fact, you're talking about a relationship where the girl's moving too fast. And here's this guitar part. I remember when John hard. played that for the first time, Greg and I looked at each other and we're like, yes, gold, solid gold. But you're not, you're not driving it hard. You're just playing it nice and easy because that's the kind of, that's how you do your relationships, right? It kind of matches. that's all it's kind of subliminal that that song that's a fun one that actually could have gone on illustrated bird i think it was it was written or mostly written that long ago am i right there greg at least it was started back in those days right and then um and then we obviously revived it and i think chip helped out with some lyrics there i know you and greg spent a lot of time while i was drinking here you guys were working on lyrics well, it's really well done, and motor, mentioning Motor Trend was fun, and Evelyn Wood, of course, being uh, the speed reading uh, course that you could take when we were growing up. Um, I'm not sure how many young people would get. I was get just going to say, yeah, I got to ask your grandparents about that one. We, we get that. We get that, that. That's a popular one. We have a lot of people say that's their favorite song on the record. But I think it's it's amazing. Um, now let's move on to Sinking Feeling, and. Uh, I know some of the answers to some of these questions because we've talked about it, but let's talk as if I don't. The decision to make this into a duet with Molly Felder of Swan Dive came late in the process, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I'm going to take 100% credit for the, the Molly Felder du- making it into a duet at least. 
More credit uh, so than she's question, taking then. Yes. yes. How late? Well, it, was the song completely recorded with Greg's voice, voice before you made the decision? No, there, there was a demo and uh, we recorded drums. And um, for whatever reason, going through the lyrics, we, you know, the lyrics were, were the, the bass for the lyrics were there. And it was always one of those ones where, hey, we're going to have to go back and, and spit shine that thing up. But for whatever reason, I spent time with the lyrics, and I it screamed uh, duet to me. And I can remember bringing it to these two guys, and I, I remember the response was, a duet? Not on our record. There's not going to be a duet on our record. We can Did the Beatles have any duets? No. Can't we? No, no. Exactly. I, 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 I remember it exactly the same way. I was totally against it. <laughs> So, so we're not doing endless love, okay? Well, yeah, and so totally. I, you, you think of duets as being pretty, pretty cheesy things from the '80s or whatever. No, and literally, Dave, it was like I, I said, okay, okay, I'm gonna put this thing on the back burner, and 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 I went to the extent of saving a file, you know, on Dropbox that I, I think I titled it something totally different, you know, like Chip's idea for song number thirty-seven or something, <laughs> so nobody would bother to look at it, right? Um. But uh, when it came down to to actually recording it after the, you know, we had gone through the demo phase, um, I I said, listen, man, we really need to think about doing this. And I think I can get, you know, some female to to do the counterpart for it. And um, And Chip sold me on it when he said, hey, I think I can get Molly Felder. And that that was pretty much the, (laughs) that was the the end of the salesmanship on that. Yes. Yeah, I'm intrigued. Yeah, I did a little bit of you know back back uh, behind the scenes with it. I we have a, a, a there's a mutual friend of Greg and I's. Uh, Doyle Dean was a drummer in a band we used to play with uh, back uh, in the Hamtramck scene, and I know he had lived in a in a neighborhood that Molly lived in in Indiana, and so I went to Doyle and I said, "Hey, what do you think the odds are of Molly?" Uh, helping us out here. And he said, you know, he said it was one of those things. It's like, well, you never know unless you try. So um, literally it was a shout out, you know, an instant message to her that said, Hey, we're the hangabouts where we play pop music. We're from Ann Arbor, Michigan. Had no idea who it was. Um, And I can remember getting the email back from her where, you know, she said, oh my gosh, how I've never, how how have I never heard of you guys? Absolutely. I'd love to do it. Um, I was in an airport in Nashville at the time and um, everything just from there just worked like magic. Thank God we found her too. Yeah. She's what a, well, and she's an awesome person too. She's a just sweetest person to work with. She's a sweetheart. And a pro. I mean, just listening to when, when Greg and I got these vocal takes, she recorded in a studio out there, as you might have imagined. She lives out west. When we got these vocal takes back, and you know, they're isolated tracks, you just put them up on the console and press solo. Our jaws, we were just laughing. We, we loved it so much. We were crying and laughing, and, and jaws dropped at the same well, time. Yeah, because she brought something that wasn't in the original song. Oh, totally. Yeah, in terms oh, yeah. of her feminine personality that, that you couldn't have gotten any other way. And melodies. I mean, she wrote hundred percent. She probably should have gotten songwriting credit. Yeah, in fact, we should fix it. <laughs> yeah, she's just such a great vocalist. I love you, yeah, but it's a sinking feeling. I'm never coming up for air. I'm lying here staring at the ceiling, wondering how I got. 
Does like you know if you listen to Swan Dive, it's kind of like pop meets bossa. Kind if of you stuff. haven't listened to Swan Dive, just go stop right you now. And put on circles. I love a lot of Hang About songs, but Sinking Feeling and Roman Forum are are, are head and shoulders for me above the others, and uh, just because they're special to me. Um, when we get to the last pre-chorus, I've actually used that in my songwriting courses to show people what good writing is and you say you've got these two people uh meeting uh for a, a love affair and they they both know it's not uh, they shouldn't be doing it that's what that's why they have a sinking feeling at the beginning of a beautiful time together and they say under nom de plume which means they're writing on the guest register if anybody thinks about it my class the class didn't get that until i explained it to them with I didn't a get it until you explained it to me just now either. <laughs> well, maybe, I, maybe you didn't. Well, because uh, I didn't write it, though. <laughs> oh, gotcha. Under nom de plume because it's Mr. and Ms. Smith, right? Absolutely. I mean, it's a it's a cliche. It's one of those cliches that you just kind of turn on its head and 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 write it in a slightly different way, and it still was works. That, you Chip? that was Greg. That's that was a Greg Greg oh, Gregism. Well, some people say uh, I'm going to use a, I'm going to use this word because it rhymes, right? But nom de plume is a dangerous thing to throw into a song because if it's not exactly the right meaning, it just sounds forced. Well, it's the perfect meaning. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> Now run along. <laughs> All right. So um, my next one that I want to pull out is uh, 12 songs. Is that a John song? It is. Tender vocal delivery. Harmony could have been sung by a female backup singer, but it's not. It's Greg. This is a beautiful song. It has country roots, but it doesn't scream out, hey, I'm country. You know, the country you're hearing in it is, I think, probably driven by a, a, a like kind of a one-take guitar thing with a lot of those bent notes in it. And I'll say one-take, but then it was assembled, and I think I was noodling around. Actually, not 
expecting that that guitar stuff would be on the it's one of those where you play it and and greg was engineering so the way we typically work is if greg's playing the part i'm the engineer he's in the other room and i'm operating the console and pushing the talk back button and saying hey great okay try it again this is one of those where i was playing greg's engineering he's like oh that's cool we're going to use that and i was like no 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 i was just noodling around i'm not even sure it was in tune he's like no it's good that's what we're going to use and that was i don't think we we hadn't cut the lead vocal yet but that was pretty far along the line and i hadn't thought about that song having any sort of country influence but but when you say the monkeys in my mind i was probably thinking more of like 1965 era Beatles, which of sure. course is where a lot of the monkey stuff came from in the first but place. But it wouldn't but be out of character to have a lap steel on that. I get it. As soon as you say that, and I'm hearing you say it, I realize it's like, yeah, for sure. It would totally fit. Yep. And, you know, just as a side note, that was another song written. Uh, John and I in a car um, <laughs> uh, came up with the concept of... After uh, having lunch at Zingerman's, probably. Uh, yeah, of writing 12 songs all about the same girl you're crazy about. Uh, you write a whole album's worth of songs about about this girl, um, which pretty much says it all. That was actually, that's true, because we thought, okay, we have to have a concept for the album. And it turns out, that, you know, we didn't use it. Now I'll, I'll be very pretentious and say, you know, like, Who's Next, Pete Townsend's record, was cobbled together after this Lifehouse project failed. That's kind of what Illustrated Bird ended up as, is there was this concept for it being all cohesive, and by the time you get through the year and a half of recording it, um, I think we were like, okay, let's just take the 10 best songs, even if they don't all fit together. I like the fact that you just, you named the number 12. You just picked that number. It could have been the number of songs on an album, but it's also a concrete number. That's lo- that's a lot of songs that you would have written about one girl. You know, it's not five, it's not six, it's 12. Right. It just makes it work. I love it. I've been listening in. I don't know where you've been But everybody's worried that you're selling out When you know you ought to be telling us What's in your heart instead You've been keeping it here Since the last thing you did Greg on piano. Me on piano, which is pretty unusual to begin with. But yeah, I think it just, um, you know, part of it just coming up with me not, you know, not really knowing how to play piano and, and playing piano and, and writing this song, uh, again, that's that's kind of tongue-in-cheek about someone who, you know, uh, it, you know, we all have our favorite artist and that, oh, you know, why are they selling out? 
and and like it's a like it's a terrible thing you know hey can you write about what's in your heart <laughs> don't don't sell out um well i mean that's all tongue in cheek i mean i think you know most artists want to be successful i mean i think it's ridiculous to say oh you know uh, you know, I want to stay an underground artist, and you know, uh, that's a foreign concept to me. So that's kind of the genesis of the songs. For whatever reason, at the time that was being finished, I I jumped in with kind of the bridge, the middle part. You were Superman and all that, or at least the the chords to it. And I was I was kind of writing the song about us. It was almost like a self analysis thing. Like we. You know how sometimes you have to boost yourself up as a songwriter. There's a lot of self-doubt that creeps in, or there can. And and even though we'd had a, uh, by our standards, successful, which means I think we sold seven copies and a few people heard it and got played on the radio. But, you know, you go to record the next thing. And that's that's, for me, that's where that came from, is that song is about us in my head, even though I didn't write the main bit of it. But I always... I always applied it to about us. You were Superman. You know you can't be super once again. And that's, at least for me, that's where that part comes from. Another favorite of mine on the new album is Taking You to Leave Me, which is another great use of opposites. Um, Sometimes title writing is really helpful. Um, It's helpful to think of an opposite. Um, You're taking me somewhere to leave me, right? Uh, and I wanted to know if you wrote the title first or near the beginning of the process. Yeah, you, you, it's all chipper, right? Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, you pretty much nailed it, Dave. That was one of those ones where you just, some thought pops into your head and you thought, oh my gosh, that is, that's a great concept. You know, that's a perfect example of me bringing something uh, fairly basic and rudimentary to, to to the table that these guys flesh out with, you know, sounds and things i remember you had that you had the lyric mostly there and you and greg worked on a couple of details uh-huh. that happened yeah but then you also you also did have that the basic four chord thing yeah correct yeah i did that kind of interesting yeah. open string thing which i always liked a lot yeah it worked well it worked well that that came together and there was a there was a bit where you know i i know john uh, the background vocals, it was like, let's do this little Laurel Canyon kind of, you know, thing. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it really added a lot to it. I yeah. You that. talk about eclectic. It, it's, you, you would never in the old days, an A&R guy would never allow a band to have that song on a record with kids and cats and sex and wives. They just don't belong in the same record, but we don't care. I, that's why I love you. <laughs> Thanks. Follow the sunshine which is a brilliant use of melody and chords. Tell me about how you wrote it. Uh, it's just, it's really as simple as it sounds. It's basically an invitation to come over for, a, for an evening at the Lowry House. to the 
whenever I have get-togethers like that or have been part of them, those are those are just some of the most memorable nights in the summertime sitting around and playing songs with your friends around a campfire and nobody ever wants to go home and you just keep going, going and going and going. And that's that's really what that song, the story is. Got to thank Ken Green for playing guitar on that. Came up with some tasty licks. He actually, if you can spot it, there's a prize for you. He, uh, Ken's idea for that was to quote another song as the melody for his for his guitar part. Was it "Let's Get It On"? <laughs> we'll have to ask him. Just bringing it back for bringing it back. No, it was "Blurred Lines." Close. Okay, "Blurred Lines" great. Um. Cricket time is sort of a bookend then in that way because Follow the Sunshine ends at the campfire. Everybody gather around the campfire. Cricket time is all the playtime during the day. And of course, it's childhood. I love the double meaning of the cricket bats and, uh, and, the, and the actual insects. It's not like today When kids like to play On computers all day It's cricket time We're sitting and the doors were open in the basement working on something. And you know how sometimes those little mole crickets get in your house and start chirping? And it was evening. And uh, I think we were actually trying to make a recording of something. And the the crickets started chirping. We had to stop the recording because they were getting into the mics. We said, oh, it's cricket time. And Greg and I looked at each other. And we just like right then knew we had had something to work with. I, I don't think the song came right away. but No. Because like later on when I was playing around with the twelve string, that's that, right. it had to be riff, that riff, the little riff right? part came yeah. out of of just playing around on a twelve string, and then like, hey, yeah, that's cricket time. I think you know. So that song that came together pretty quick. It was a lot of fun. Chip came in and helped with lyrics too, and and uh, and plays the role of a a worst English accent you've ever heard in your <laughs> life. As yeah, a that, there, there's a big long drawn out ending of that that fortunately got got kind of faded barely very quickly i mean dave you nailed it that that is childhood memories of days gone by innocence no responsibilities that takes us through all the songs that i had prepared to talk about and i wanted to ask you guys do you have any songwriting goals is there a particular type of song that you'd like to write but you haven't gotten around to for instance or anything else honestly for me it's almost like a a quest that is you, you can't really accomplish, you know, writing, writing the perfect pop song, you know, it, it, you'll write a song and you think that, you, you know, that's a great song. I love that song. I think I did it. I'm there. And then, you know, you, you'll always want to go back and write another one and, and, and keep reaching, you know, higher. I think we, we, as um you know, the name Suburban Hi-Fi lives on, it's actually our publishing company, but I think as songwriters for other artists, 
we have a lot of material that will probably never see light of day as hangabouts material. And so the idea of producing a record for someone else, you know, a female singer, we've written songs for females. We're just not going to put them on a hangabouts record. They're sung from a female perspective. There's folders and folders of songs that are in various stages of completion, including some complete ones that you just haven't released for whatever reason. And it also is funny how the goalpost keeps moving because I, you know, I think when we first started doing this, I'd be like, oh man, I would be so, I would be happy if we could just get a song played on the radio. That's all I right. want. If I and it was get a cool song the first played time on the radio. That is very cool. And you're, this, you're play, they're playing your song on the radio and you're jumping up and down. And then it's like, okay, what's next? And then it's like, oh, it'd be cool if we had a song like on a compilation or album or something like that. And then maybe that happens. And then it's like, hey, we're in a Netflix movie. Yeah. Next thing you know. I didn't see that coming. No. You, got, you and, got cricket time placed into that Netflix movie called Set It Up, which is, it certainly exceeded our expectations. For sure. I mean, it's like beyond, you know, it's like, oh, that's so cool. You're yeah. <laughs> Your song is in a movie. It's like beyond what you would ever dream. And then, so it's like, you know, the, that goalpost just keeps moving. So and we uh, got to play live with Dave Caruso in our band too. Absolutely. <laughs> Career <laughs> thanks highlight. Again. Yeah. Thanks again for that. Thanks for inviting me. It was a blast. So how did you get that movie um, placement? Yeah, the, the movie placement thing came about, Dave, with, you know, there, there, there's, there's, there's a bunch of uh, these music library things out online uh, where, you know, you upload your songs and you, you tag them with, with all kinds of data, you know, lyrical uh, references, uh, the, the beats per minute, um, the feeling the song's trying to convey. And you, you kind of throw them all out there into the ether and and hope that, you know, some music supervisor somewhere is going to log on and say, hey, I'm looking for a song about cricket, about, you know, the sport cricket, about crickets and the whatever. Are you talking about Rumblefish? No, this, the, it's similar stuff. I, I'm trying to think. There, there, there's several out there. Music supervisor is one. Um, Song Trader is the one that ended up getting us this placement in the Netflix movie. And, you know, we thought about it and bedded it around. We're not sure uh, w- when we heard that it was going to be used in the movie, we thought, oh, they, it must be a sport, uh, a song, a movie about sport. You know, maybe it's an English guy, you know, who's a cricket fan or whatnot. Um, we tried to figure out what else could have attracted a, a music supervisor to that song um other than the fact that it's an amazing recording yeah and, and, and so so it but it's it, it truly is you 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 throw these things out there and you really uh, after that you're you're kind of helpless you're at the the mercy of somebody hearing it and saying oh this is a perfect match this is what i was looking for so describe how it felt to watch it and how did it what did they use where did they use it? Um, it was used in a putt-putt golf scene. It's a romantic um, comedy, and then the, the protagonists are are starting to fall in love, and um, and they're out playing putt-putt in uh, in the city, and it's 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 cute. I mean, it's sounds pretty perfect. Yeah. I mean, the the funny thing is, is that I think at the end of the day, it, like really what the song was about, maybe didn't have that much to do with it. I think they probably liked the way it sounded. Yeah, and. Uh, how it laid, how it laid behind the, how you know, how it laid behind the scene, and that was that was good enough. Yeah, but it wasn't a serial serial killer scene. So you <laughs> we were, we we could have done far worse. Yeah.
Although those slasher movies, that's where all the money is. <laughs> well, before I forget, I want to make sure I mention that Chip is a marketing madman. Pretty much um, every blog, reviewer, internet radio show that's out there is friendly with the Hangabouts, and that's because of his work. Thank you. Amen uh, to that. Me if I'm wrong. Appreciate it. Yeah, he works it hard. Again, like I said, um, and it, you know, without without Chip jumping in and and kind of steering us straight, Greg and I'd be noodling around in the basement making music that no one would hear. And and thanks to Chip, I mean, we've got stuff on vinyl, stuff on CD. There's there's a lot of Hangabouts product out there. One of the things you know that I'm most proud of is our attention to craft you know we we want to write a good song and we want to make it something that people want to hear something we're proud of christmas is the time when you should put aside the bad stuff in your life and you can think about comet and rudolph and all of those reindeer and get your mind off of things so uh, you got an album in the works? Something you're you're planning or working on? First order of business, Dave. We 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 have to get a Christmas song in the can by the end of October. Do you like having one every year now? Well, this is actually good, part of a compilation that that uh, we were asked to be a part of, and and we've got to throw something together here. Yeah, we have a couple that we've written and and released, and. Um, yeah, Dave, to, to say that we would like to do one annually, yeah, for sure. But we always think about them in November, which is a little bit late. <laughs> too late. <laughs> so, yeah, we'll be doing uh, getting the jingle bells out here in August. and We have an X-rated one written, but we're not <laughs> we sure if it's going to make sure it. that's going to work. Ow, chicka, pow, pow. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, it's, it's close. It's it's pretty rough. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty rough, yeah. <laughs> It's funny. I've done one of those myself. It'll never see the light of day, but it's it's fun to do. Oh, these guys are these guys are actually thinking about it. <laughs> I won't let it happen. I'm the gatekeeper. Right. Yes. Yeah. Someone has to be the censor. So uh, your albums are all available at Bandcamp. Is that the best place to buy them? Yes, unless you bump into us out in the street, in which case we've got CDs in our cars. But yeah, I think so. You can always go to the Hangabouts website. And the Hangabouts website doesn't have a the in it. It's just hangabouts.com, and it's very cool looking. I'm going to save you some time typing. That uh, animation going on that goes right over the top of the navigation and everything. It's, it's pretty. The multi-talented Gregory Addington. Yes, <laughs> Addington at work. Yeah, you can find our stuff anywhere. I mean, CD Baby, Bandcamp. Um, I, I know. Uh, Encore we, Records. We aren't offic- yeah, we aren't officially on Amazon, but I know people buy it there. Eventually, Dearborn? that just pulls back to us. Does Dearborn Records still have a... Dearborn Music has it, Dearborn yes. Music. Streaming services. However you like yeah. to consume yeah, music. Spotify, all that good stuff. Well, I want to thank you for making time to talk with me today and uh, wish you the best of luck, and I'll be watching for your next album. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having us, Dave. Thanks for having us, Dave. Thanks, Dave. You've been listening to Songwriter Stories, Episode 4 with The Hangabouts. Thanks for spending some time with us. There's more to this podcast than just the interview. For bonus content, visit songwriterstories.com and click on the Writer's Room link for this episode. That's all for now. I'm Dave Caruso, and I'll see you next time.